You're listening to Ambe, a year of Indigenous reading. So my father's family is from Western Maine um, and into the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And um, the English went into uh, what's now Nova Scotia and um, um, forcibly removed all the French. They also had uh, bounties on Abenaki people in Maine. So the, the, that particular history happened um, in my family and affected them in two different places. Um, I guess I was in graduate school, I'm reading the graduate school poem and realizing that everything that they were talking about didn't include our history and that if I tried to write about it, that that was a problem. So um, I've written about, it. I've, I've written about it a lot. I actually, um, my book, Motherland came out. I initially thought of it as, as an unhistory um, of Northeast on Turtle Island, I think was the original title. Um, because we don't do our history, um, Findelory has talked about this. We don't we don't do history so much as we do stories that are um, around place, and um, because those stories, um, I guess I was being told over and over, don't don't tell these stories, don't talk about this. I decided I was going to do that, and not somehow uh, focus on the moment of um, of the invasion, but to tell the stories around place. Hello everyone, I'm Taya Miles and I am living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is Massachusetts territory. And I'm originally from Ohio. Uh, my family traces its, its roots back to South Carolina, Mississippi enslavement. And from there, it becomes very difficult to trace one's ancestors if you're African-American. Um, my my books have focused on African-American and Native American relationships historically. And uh, I think the one that some people may have looked at for this book group meeting is Crossing Waters, Crossing Worlds, which is a co-edited collection of chapters and essays that I worked on with a colleague, Sharon Holland. Sharon Holland focuses on literature. I focus on history, but we are both um, really working in the overlapping areas of fields. Interesting. Actually, I, that is the, that's um, the book that I read most recently. I think I've read most of the books because they came off my bookshelf. But <laughs> but that's I, I read that one the most recently. I really I really enjoyed that. Uh, Khadija. Hi, um, my name is Khadija Hamuga. Um, I am in Niagara, Ontario, St. Catharines to be specific, which is traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Um, my family is originally from North Africa. I immigrated with my immediate family when I was 12 from Libya in North Africa. And I have not written a book, but I, am, I feel very blessed and grateful to be in the presence of so many amazing authors and Patty who is writing a book. So I'm very excited for that. Um, the book I read was also All Our Relations um, by Tanya Talaga. I am very excited to read the other books. I'm not as fast a reader as Patty is, and I, I think last time we talked, asked her how she manages to read so many. But they're all on my to-do, to-read list, so I'm very excited to get to them, but I'm very grateful to be in conversation with you all. 
Um, the thing I think that really struck me about Tanya's book, um, much like Janessa, I really like that she talked about indigeneity um, across the globe and different experiences um, of indigenous communities. And it got me thinking about um, my own context as a settler in um, Canada, but also um, in my background because I am, so my family's from North Africa, but my family is Arab and Arabs are traced back to the Arabian Peninsula. So they also migrated um, thousands of years ago to North Africa. And so that also got me thinking about the relationship um, my community has back in Libya with the indigenous people of North Africa, um, Amazigh and Tuareg um, people who are the indigenous people all across, across North Africa. So that just the introspection about um, different indigenous communities across the globe got me thinking about my own context, both currently and my background. So that was really interesting. And Sean. Excuse me, don't say. Megazi Dorem, was a Konimashiki Nadishnikas, Mihiratia Adimswak, Niti Irish Indau. So I'm uh, Sean. Um, uh, one of the names that I go by translates to the medicine that light brings. Uh, I am Baldi Go clan, uh, adopted into the uh, Anishinaabe people. Um, my family is originally from uh, sort of Saskatchewan, Alberta, and then Northern Ontario. Um, and my family were, um, and extended king were uh, signatures of treaties four, six, and eight. <clears throat> so we span quite a quite a geography there across the prairies at one time. Um, in terms of uh, where I am right now, I'm currently in uh, Toronto, so the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe people, Haudenosaunee and Wendat. Um, and uh, I was born here. Um, so um, my family, um, my my grandparents left where they were from. Uh, so my dad's side is Irish, which is where you get Kinsella from. Um, and my mom's family uh, left northern Ontario and then out west uh, at the end of World War II. Uh, so both of them served in, in combat and then came back and settled in Thunder Bay uh, and then sort of eventually moved into uh, Hamilton, actually, um, uh, because they were working. Uh, my grandfather worked for the, the Hamilton spec um, for a number of years. Um, and so um, I, I read uh, Cheryl's book and I think it really resonated with me um, in particular the poem, the sort of this notion of, of who, who and where we start history from. So this notion of being in grad school and, and this idea of um, trying to write about your people and trying to sort of like interrogate that notion and being told on one hand that you're not supposed to do that, 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 um, that that's not the history they're looking for. That's not the history that uh, that is interesting or intersectional for for folks, but um, but eventually is the one they want to hear when it pertains to to a particular topic. So I was really struck by that notion of sort of like. Um, and in the work that I do, so I work at a, at a college uh, and I work in Indigenous inclusion. And it's sort of that every time I'm in a meeting, I'm like, wait, is now the time? Is now the time to talk about the Indigenous stuff? Like, can I bring it up? Is this, is this, the, right, is this the right sphere? No? Okay, great. I'm just going to go back, back in my lane over there. Uh, and then, you know, the time when all of a sudden it's, it's needed, right? So, um, so I think that um, that was very much uh, a resonance of my own uh, my own sort of experience in grad school. And then also, um, I think even as... Um, as a person who's a poet myself, like how much, you know, how much uh, indigeneity and how much of our nations and languages can we bring in before it sort of becomes too much? Um, even while we're, we're balancing that with the fact that our histories have been hidden. So um, for myself, you know, um, as a, as a light-skinned sort of Métis and Cree person, um, the, the displacement um, from sort of colonialism uh, has led to me growing up not hearing my languages 
and being extracted from my community and having to re regain those ceremonies and learn them on this territory, which is the work that I've done. So I think it was an interesting um, balance and I really appreciated um, uh, a lot of the different sort of resonance and some of the traditional stories and the way it was weaved in with the book. Thank you, Sean. And uh, Cheryl, maybe we could open, you could read, uh, you could, you could read that poem. Okay. Um, this poem is called Graduate School First Semester. So here I am writing about Indians again. Uh, starts with a quote from Nona LaDuc, the conquest is not sustainable. Thanks for bringing that to our attention, she said the first time to my response to a history text about a famous painting of the Battle of Quebec that never mentioned the French and only mentioned Indians twice, once as nuisances, once as the noble savage kneeling by the dying English general. This was during the French and Indian War, I said. Soon thousands of French and Indian people would be displaced sold into indentured servitude, my own family among them. There would be bounties on the heads of Abenaki people in Maine, and the English would sow the fields of the Mohawks with salt. Thanks for bringing that up, she said. The next book mentioned cannibals in the Caribbean, Indians who believed the Spanish were gods, Indians killing themselves, Indian women in love with Spanish pricks, Indians whose names, even when known, were passed over in favor of the ones given them by the Spanish. Stop writing about Indians, she told me. You're making everyone feel guilty. But the next book was back in Maine, home territory, the diary of a midwife, right after that same French and Indian war. And she was using herbs not found in English herbals and wrote that a young squaw visited her over a period of three weeks. But the famous historian said only that there may have been Indians in the area, while she wrote at length about white men dressing up as Indians to protest against the rich stealing their lands. Stop writing about Indians, she told me again, only louder, as if I was hard of hearing. You have to allow authors their subjects, she said. Stop writing about what isn't in the text, which is just our entire history. This week, she said, I'm really upset. You're telling the same story three times because there's only one story about Indians and we all know what it is. So I asked her if there are an infinite number of stories about white people and she told me to stop being racist. So I stayed away from class for a week because they were reading a book about a mystery in the Everglades and I knew there had to be Indians in that swamp and I didn't wanna to have to write about Indians again. It was on to the next book, Written, she said, by a Cherokee writer, which Leslie Silko, who is Laguna, would be interested to find out because the book was ceremony. But that is a small mistake, sort of like saying that Dante is Chinese. So I overlooked it. Now she told me, write about Indians. And I might have done that, except she went on about Indians putting on a mask of whiteness, like white people put on blackface. And some of the students wrote it down in their notebooks and everyone started talking about minstrel shows. Then she wanted me to tell her if there is such a thing as an Indian worldview. And I said, well, yes and no, which I figured was safe since I would be at least half right, whichever answer she wanted. But when I mentioned the European worldview, she said there isn't any such thing, which was quite a relief to me. I hate to think there are a whole lot of people thinking in hierarchies and as if the earth is a dead object 
and animals and plants and some people not having spirit. Then she said, I'd better stick to what I know, that is Indians, which is what I was trying to do in the first place. And that maybe European philosophy was too much for my primitive brain, in spite of its being my undergraduate major. And I pointed out that the oppressed always know more about the oppressor than vice versa. So she just glared at me and told me that I look Scandinavian, which was a surprise to me. And I wondered why I never was a prom queen since it was always the Scandinavian girls who got that honor. Maybe they never noticed I was one of them. Exactly how much Indian are you anyway, she asked. I told her I guessed I was pretty much Indian. I suppose she wondered why I wouldn't accept that mask of whiteness she kept talking about as myself. I really like that poem. The story of how I found that poem was, um, there's a quote by, from Sherman Alexie about how when the great American Indian novel is written, all the white people will be Indians and all the Indians will be ghosts. And I really liked that picture, but then everything kind of went sideways and I wanted to quote somebody um, who wasn't Sherman Alexi to get that point across. And somebody, and so I just kind of threw it out into the Twitterverse that I was looking for something that conveyed that, you know, that kind of conveyed the same idea. And then that was how somebody had sent me a link to uh, that poem by Cheryl. And it really does, it really does capture that, um, that erasure really well. And there's a line where your teacher says to you know to stop writing what isn't in the text and so what I'm wondering and maybe we'll start with Nick in the book that you wrote um which actually I wrote I read just before Crossing Waters Crossing Worlds what what isn't in the text that you wanted to write about like what is it what isn't in the kind of the broad history texts that we all read what are, what are those gaps that you were trying to fill yeah, that's actually a really good question. And first of all, I want to just apologize. I'm like, I'm really sick. <laughs> um, so I, I missed the other part of your question that you asked in introductions. I'm Kuli Chasha from the Lower Rule Sioux tribe. <laughs> I was born and raised in South Dakota. Um, so I'm a, I'm a transplant here in, in Albuquerque right now. But the question, you know, the that question is actually really important because the book itself is in many ways a continuation of a story that began with um, my grandfather, Frank Estes. And I talk a little bit about it in the prologue to the book called Prophets. Um, but the, you know, I, I, he was one of the grandfathers, you know, I have five grandfathers um, from Lower Brule and he was the one grandfather I never grew up around. He also didn't speak Lakota. Um, the rest of my grandfathers were all fluent Lakota speakers. And he was kind of the, this kind of mysterious figure. And I met him for the first and last time in Tempe, Arizona around like 2013. And I actually interviewed him. Um, and it was right around the time the Department of Interior was doing the land buyback program. I don't know if people are familiar with that. Um, but essentially, you know, the, the allotments that were allotted to my family are currently underwater right now. Um, and they sent him this little package. And it was kind of funny because they built the dam and they still parcel out the land, even though it's like literally underwater um, to show uh, where our original family allotment was. And so that actually began a kind of longer conversation that he and I had 
um, because I grew up with stories with of my my grandfather uh, Brown, Grandpa Brown, or um, Andrew Estes, as being kind of you know the kind of leader of the family, the pa patriarch, but in, not in a weird like Western way, you know. Um, and also my great grandfather, um, who was a Yeska or translator, um, Ruben Estes. Um, he was also the first chairman of the tribe. And so I grew up knowing those stories, but when I talked to my grandpa Frank, he explained to me that actually it was my grandmother, um, Cornelia Shawala, who was really the matriarch of the family. And he filled in all of these stories uh, and history that I just had not um, considered. You know, for example, we were in a battle with the federal and state government about the damming of the river my grandfather, you know, even though he, my great-grandfather Reuben, even though he spoke English, he couldn't read or write because he never went to school. Um, but my grandmother Cornelia was sent to boarding school and she learned to read and write. And so she wrote and she, she wrote all of the foundational documents that led to this larger case against um, the, uh, the, the U.S. government, but then also the founding of the modern kind of tribal council uh, and that was something that you would never find in the archives. You know, it would, it was completely erased. The fact that all of these powerful, you know, church fathers and, uh, you know, congressmen, senators were actually talking to a woman. They had no idea because she was the one that was writing the, the letters. And that was really profound, you know, and, and going back to the allotment stories. And I wrote about this, I actually wrote an essay that's going to be published in, in a book called allotment stories that kind of gives a background to that you know, that, the things that I couldn't include in the book. Um, you know, she talks, he talks about my grandmother Cornelia uh, Shawala and talks, you know, a lot about um, how, you know, she was a product of a, of a marriage that completely defied, you know, Christian norms at the time, right? It wasn't even really a marriage. It was, you know, so like the allotment docu documents have that. And, you know, there was, you know, one, there was uh, one man who originated from, um, Wambly, South Dakota, his name is White Calf River. And he had taken, I think, uh, four wives and he only married one the Christian way. Um, so why, you know, that story with my grand grandpa Frank was really important is because he had this like paper, you know, and it had all of our uh, like allotment relatives. He's like, we're related to the, the same land. And I was like, wow, that's a really like profound thing to say. And he's like, no, actually like, if you look at the allotment paper related to all these strangers and he was like a sociologist you know he was a smart he was a, like a trained you know scientific man um and you know he was like he the way he described it he was he was like citing emil uh, durkheim and you know things like that but basically his theory was that you know the world of paper in the form of allotments had replaced you know the world of indigenous relations and, you know, he was, he was talking about how, you know, that really was grounded in the land. And it's like, it's not just like a kind of metaphor. It's like a, it's a real relation. And through the stories of, you know, the allotment itself, he, he, he identified like the Western way that we relate to land because we're actually, because of allotments and fractionation, we are related to all of these people, but they're like strangers and they're, we're basically paper relatives. And it seemed really, you know, bizarre to me and really fascinating. But then he was like, the end of our conversation he's like well you know like you know your your cousin you know such and such they're not actually blood related to you because we took them in you know we did we did an adoption ceremony and that's the real like way that we relate to each other um 
And that was like, you know, that was really profound for me and that stuck with me and it never made it into the book, but nonetheless, it, you know, I had, I had to write a piece afterwards because I was like, this has to be included because there was, it just didn't really fit with the story that I was trying to write, but I'm sure that, you know, in these massive amounts, you know, because the US government, uh, like all colonial governments, records its atrocities, you know, it records its crimes. And there's all these stories within there, you know, um, that kind of seem dead in, in many ways when you do the archives. And so like doing that kind of oral history work, uh, especially like brings to light and like brings to bear these kinds of stories that would other, otherwise not be told. So that was, that was something that, that really stuck out to me. And there's more, but I'll just, I'll just keep it at that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and Taya, you know, kind of the same, the same question for you. What, what gaps, you know, what, what holes in history are you trying to fill? And I know like when I read those essays, there's a lot of relationship talk in there, you know, like there's a lot of analysis, like Nick had said, you know, we have so many robust ways of making kin and making relationship, you know, beyond, you know, kind of lineal descent. So can you talk a little bit about your book and what, what gaps you are trying to fill with it? Yes. I can, and I'd be glad to. And um, I want to start first by thanking Cheryl for that poem. So we powerful. Lost her. Oh, I don't know if she's, she's back. If she's, I was going to say, I don't know if she's still on the call, but no, she's back. really interesting because, oh, oh, I see her. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in her poem where she's describing a book that was. I'm sorry, my instrument. Oh, that's okay. We can, we can see that you're there. I was just saying that in your poem, you describe a book that was a really important book to me in graduate school. And I used to have this fantasy that I was going to write a whole book about that moment that you talk about in your poem about the plants and the native woman who's got plants. There's also an African enslaved woman in that same book who's got plants. And there's no discussion of, what are these women? What are the plants they're using? What are their relationships? There's really just, um, a central frame, which is about the white midwife. And the white midwife is a fascinating person. I'm glad that there was a book written about her, but there should also be books about the native woman and about the black woman. And especially I think about the ways in which they must've been in some kind of relationship because they were both providing that other midwife with her materials and probably with important knowledge. So that's just a thought I had here in your fantastic poem. Um, I, I think that I'm actually gonna try to see if I can play this in my class tomorrow, if the recording's up soon enough, or maybe even just give it a try to read it and allow myself, because that was terrific. And I think that example really goes to your, your question, Patty, about what's missing. I'll just go back and fill in some context, which is that in college, I was a black studies major and for me, this was an opportunity to, you know, find myself, find my roots. That's how I felt about it, you know, 18, 19, to understand more about who I was. And I focused all of my attention, both in the classroom and out of the classroom, on Black cultural, you know, um, analysis and production. And I think that's all well and good. I think people should be doing that. But it wasn't until, you know, probably my junior year, and I am not proud of this, that I realized that Native American history was a history 
just as powerful and just as filled with atrocities as Nick has just said, as African-American history. I didn't realize that, I didn't think about that. I was very focused on one topic, one set of questions. And uh, to keep bringing this circle around, one of the ways that I came to that, not the only way, but one of the ways I came to that was Winona LaDuke coming to my campus and giving a talk. Hmm. So once I, I realized that, it was like the scales fell off my eyes. And there was no, there's really no choice but to try to understand this other history, try to understand these other peoples, try to understand the relationships between and among all of these peoples, talking about Black peoples and Native peoples, uh, especially in the context of uh, US nation building and colonial history. So that's the first missing piece for me, Patty. It was, I don't think it should be possible that a student can go through Black studies and never study Native America, never study Native people, never study Native places. It doesn't make sense because there would be no Black studies in the US if it were not for Native peoples, Native places, Native lands, et cetera. And African-Americans have long known this. There has long been um, a Black imaginary about Native people and about Native spaces and Oftentimes that imaginary has been romanticized, it's been overly romanticized, um, but that doesn't mean that the relationships did not exist. So to me, that is very important. But I will add kind of a counterbalancing weight to this, which is that once I started studying Native American studies, and this didn't happen until graduate school, I saw um, a similar kind of emptiness. That is Native history and Native studies was not noticing black people, was not noticing black culture, was not noticing black kin. And there really is an overlap there. And so um, I felt like there was this erasure and this sliding happening um, going in, in both directions. And in neither context was it good for anybody. In my view, it was only weakening Black people and only weakening Native peoples. And you know, I could say more about the book if you'd like, but that's, that's a big part of why I'm doing this, not the whole part. Some, some reasons are personal, but it's a big part of why I'm doing this. And um, it's a big part of the problem that I see. And, um, and I think that, the, that at least partial solutions to some of the, the real problems that Native peoples and Black peoples contend with has to do with recognizing what we can bring to one another. Mm. Thank you, Taya. That was, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed the essays. I've never been a big one for reading a lot of essays, um, but I'm starting to come around. <laughs> I'm starting to come around and and, and really en and really enjoy the way essays kind of unpack ideas in a very clear way. Um, so yeah, so I, I really, I really liked that. And then it was funny, I had just started reading Robert Warrior's essay and then he followed me on Twitter and I, it was, wow, that's amazing timing. I just started reading your essay. I didn't even, I was gonna look for him on, cause that happens a lot. I'll find authors then I'll go looking for them on Twitter and start to, and start pestering them. Um, so uh, Khadija, did you have any, Thoughts? I know uh, Khadija and I met, we um, 
doing child welfare together. And of course, one of the first things that you do in child welfare is you review, you, you look at people's history and there's, and there's, you know, and there's always gaps in their history because the history is their contact with the child welfare organization. And so this just really made me think of the work that, of, of the work that social workers do in terms of looking at people's history. And so that was what made me think of, um, inviting Khadija to participate of, of, you know, how we look at history as social workers, because these aren't just textbooks that sit on a shelf, right? You know, these are histories of, of peoples and, 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 and individuals as well. So Khadija, I was just wondering if you had anything and any thoughts that were occurring to you as Nick and Taya or in Cheryl's poem. Thank you, Patty. And thank you, Taya and Nick and Cheryl. I'm really soaking in all of what you're saying and I really appreciate all your insight. It's interesting that you mentioned history because I did, as I was reading Tanya's book and also um, Patty, the article by Raven Sinclair that you sent me, which I read recently and I kind of had the same thought reading both of them um, with regards to my work is that it's a very, it's a very dangerous road to go down in terms of tell, trying to tell a history of an individual or a people's history, right? Because the narrative can impact the future so much. And it, get, it got me thinking about like, when I, was, when I was first training, history was a big thing, right? You get a new file, you have to look to see if a family has history, right? Because the history, so to speak, can predict the, 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 the future, right? If there is a risk factor pertaining to a child, that, that is apparent in, in that family's history, you have to kind of ask about it, you have to look for it, you have to dissect if that, if that risk factor is still there. But as I was reading Tanya's book around how, how much um, erasing there is of a people's history and replacing it with the colonial narrative. And I also linked it back to um, Daniel's book. I just grabbed it because I wanted to look for the quote where he talks about, um, single stories and how single stories are shallow and they avoid complexity and then they open space for manipulation. And I realized that sometimes the, the narrative that you can build about a family is written from a child protection lens that is rooted in a colonial understanding of child protection or child welfare does so much damage that you you read the history and what you're getting is the colonial narrative of that family's history and in like as that sunk in I realized how dangerous it is to be a part of that and it really I, I actually I mentioned it at my last team meeting to my supervisor and I said um like just reading it and and between Tanya's book and um Raven Sinclair's article that Patty sent me that I'm that I mentioned um talking about um uh, the 60s scoop. And she said, she quoted a social worker that looked back and said, that was horrible what we did, who was a social worker it, it, working in child protection in the 60s. And I told my supervisor, I am so scared of 20 years from now looking back and saying, I was a part of that. And it's just such a, it, it's such a, like a reality check because you don't realize how deeply rooted you are in the colonial narrative until you're faced with the facts and then you're like wow so bet between Tanya's book and, and and Daniel's book from last month and Raven's article I'm just I'm overwhelmed with with the amount of with 
with how much shifting in perspective needs to happen to really see what's wrong with the with the way we tell stories and with the way colonial narratives of history can impact a people and an individual on so many levels. Not to not to get dark because I was really enjoying everybody's every, everybody's insight, but I think working in child welfare and discussing indigenous relations with the child welfare system is not usually a happy subject. So I'm sorry to put a damper on things. No, that's that's okay. I mean, but when when you were talking about risk assessment, it made me think of you know when we read hit the histories uh, of Canada and the U.S., we could really do a risk assessment on those states and look at you know kind of the things that they have done because really you you know when we look at the history of, of the Reconstruction period, we're right back in that right? We're right back in that place of where Canada and the U.S., you know, Canadians, Americans, Indigenous settlers, Indigenous people, all of it deciding who we're going to be and what we're going to do, right? That's especially after, um, you know, the, the the insurrection attempt on, on January 6th, um, you know, really deciding who when, we're going to reconcile with. Um, Nick, in your book, you make a point that Black, Indigenous, and Mexican peoples were brought into the U.S. as peoples, not not as individuals. Immigrants come to our come to these countries as individuals, but Black, Indigenous, and Mexican peoples were brought in as peoples. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because that was really interesting to me. Sure, that insight actually comes from Vine Deloria's book. We talk, you listen where he talks about uh, the peoplehood framework. He, he kind of expands on the, the theory of like tribalism, you know, um, and how tribalism has always been under attack by the US government, but then how uh, other people have shared collective experiences um, and specifically thinking about how, you know, for um, like, you know, Mexican-Americans or what became Mexican-American, that was an imperialist war, right? About the expansion of slavery into the Southwest. Like Texas seceded specifically because Mexico was moving to, uh, moving to abolish um, uh, chattel slavery. Um, and they declared independence and basically instigated, you know, an invasion and conquest of uh, what became the Southwest, right? And you brought up something interesting and, you know, just to kind of build on what Taya says and, you know, that I, I read Taya's um, book, uh, Ties That Bind in grad school. And it was actually the first study that I think took serious um, these. And I actually like it blew my mind. And I was like, why don't we do that? Like, I didn't even know that. I didn't even really know that history, you know? And so I was like, why don't, why isn't this, you know, a category of analysis? And it, it I, you know, I, I still haven't like, fully fleshed out um, what a lot of that means. Uh, I'm doing kind of research on the, on, like in the background, trying to think more, but you brought up the 1776, or excuse me, the Capitol protests, which was, you know, characterized by these uh, Trumpists as, you know, a 1776 moment. And I think there's been a lot of like, uh, kind of like a sneering and holding one's nose at Trump's 1776 commission but the truth of the matter is, is that there's a deep investment in that kind of narrative. And I think it's worth unpacking like how native people and uh, you know, uh, black people are talked about in 
the Declaration of Independence. And there's like, there was this weird historical debate. I, I was, you know, I was in a very conservative uh, history program at a small state college. And there was this weird historical debate about whether or not in the Declaration of Independence, the, you know, that whether or not Thomas Jefferson meant, you know, uh, the re uh, slave rebellions when he said domestic insurrections. And it was funny, it was like, well, how wouldn't it be that, you know? And so like, if we think about it in that context, um, I, you know, I know the original question was about thinking about how uh, these three groups were brought in as peoples, you know, instead of individuals. But I think, you know, centering our history and our historical analysis on looking like provincializing the United States. The United States wasn't inevitable. It, you know, at 1776 was an, an important watershed moment in what I think Gerald Horn correctly, uh, you know, assesses the situation as a counter-revolution, right? Later on, W.E.B. Du Bois would talk about the counter-revolution of property and reconstruction. Um, but I would say that it was a counter-revolution, not just for African people who were brought here, but it was also a counter-revolution for native people who overwhelmingly near universally sided with the British, not because they felt like the British were better colonizers, but they understood the threat of the American project from the very get-go. And so from the beginning, we are categorized as, you know, yeah, merciless Indian savages, but we're categorized as traitorous people, both African and native people to this land. And to me, that's, you know, that's a very fascinating history because I think so much unfolds after that, you know, the, the, the secessionist in, um, you know, uh, at the beginning of the civil war actually cited 1776 as well, you know, and they, they were honoring that kind of, you know, spirit. And it's obviously like a racial project. It's a racial grievance. This, this country was founded on a racial grievance conti to continue the kind of uh, property regimes that were put in place, um, whether it was through, you know, plantation slavery or through westward expansion. You can't, you know, you can't only look at one and not the other because they, they, they're integrated. And also, you know, it implicates both you know, it's not these like pure subjects of history, like native people, as you know, Taya has eloquent, eloquently documented. Um, the, the, both those books are very beautiful, The House on Diamond Hill and Ties at Vine. Um, they, you know, the native people to like, to enact some kind of um, recognition or, you know, legitimation in the, in the settler state began to participate in those processes as well. And you brought up um, child removal uh, you know, Henry Pratt got his idea for, for the boarding school system um, through the integration of units on the Western frontier when he was, you know, he was leading, uh, you know, uh, the Freedmen armies against, or the Buffalo soldiers against Indian people, but also employing the use of scouts as well. And he's like, why is one, why is one pe people granted citizenship and not the other? And he actually cites natal alienation as the fundamental key for subjugating uh, black people in this country. And he's like, we have to do that with indigenous people by removing them from their family. He like says this explicitly. And so there, like, like Taya says, I think there are more connections, you know, and looking at specifically child removal uh, and the foster care system that came out of it, this was something that there was cross-pollination in, in those projects, right? And so I think you can't talk about one without the other, you know, not to say nothing of, um, the category of Mexican-American and how that all came about as well. That's, that's an incredibly thing, uh, important thing, but yeah, I'll, I'll just end it there. <laughs>
I apologize. My brain is like super fuzzy. <laughs> no, that's okay. Thank you. One of the things that I thought Cheryl's poem did really well, um, because it kind of connects with, with my question, I'm going to uh, shoot another question at Taya and then, and then go back to Cheryl. Um, in the preface of your book, you talk about because you're talking about Black and Indigenous relationships, but that invisible third partner, which Cheryl's poem makes very visible, that we're, you know, that we're seeing only in the gaps uh, of, of, the white, of the white story. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that invisible third partner? Because that's, I think, you know, Nick was also, you know, with Pratt, you know, and, and what they, they were doing in the military is that we had all of these relationships, but whiteness, whiteness was always present. And, the, and then, you know, and then in Cheryl's poem, she's showing how, the, how in that way whiteness becomes the dominant story, even in our own relationships. Yes, um, I can. And uh, Nick, that was not fuzzy at all. That was a really wonderful panoramic view of all the issues we're discussing. So part of the problem that I found in doing this research, I want to come back to, to what you said, Patty, but I, I need to kind of wind my way to it. Part of the problem that I found in my research is both African-American history and Native American history were being narrated in the mainstream, the mainstream academy as binary histories in which there were only two major players. And those players were always um, the group of, of color or the indigenous people and whites, the US nation or before it, the European colonies. So these narratives were, um, were centered around a binary on, on, on both sides and both arenas, which made it very difficult to realize that there were relationships and intricate ones and deep ones that moved between these two locations, between these, these two zones. So the binary is, is a false setup, which absolutely you know, obfuscates the reality of the complexity of those relationships. In terms of the triangle, I realized this through an experience on the ground that I um, describe in, in uh, the preface to, to this book. And the experience was that I worked with some friends and colleagues, one of those being Celia Naylor, who is uh, an African-American woman from the Caribbean who also studies Cherokee and Black history. We, we worked to co-organize a conference at Dartmouth College, what feels now like a very, very long time ago, um, in 2000. And it was a, a conference on Black and Native histories and literatures. And the big final event of, of this conference was featuring a, a, a discussion by some very prominent people in the field. One of these people was a famous, accomplished, you know, well-known scholar of the Indigenous Southeast. And the person deserves all those accolades. Um, but this person gave a presentation which was about Cherokee people and black people. And then the person had to leave to catch a plane. And after the person left, a Cherokee man and a woman who would be read uh, phenotypically as black 
but who was saying she was Cherokee, got into a screaming fight. A screaming fight where the Cherokee man was telling her, you are not Cherokee. And she was insisting, I am Cherokee. And he was screaming, we did not enslave our own. It was really painful. Um, it was a scene in terms of nobody knew what to do. It was totally unexpected. You know, people were crying, people were screaming. And at the time, as one of the conference organizers and you know, somebody who was still in graduate school and quite young, and this is the first thing that I had worked on um, to bring people together and you know, around these questions, I thought, oh my goodness, our, our gathering is ruined. It's a disaster, it's over. The point of this, the spirit of this was to bring together scholars, artists, you know, from, from across identities and from across these fields and have a conversation and to show and reveal, you know, really how long, deep, rich and complex these histories and literatures and cultural formations are. And the last session is a screaming fight between a Cherokee man and a woman who was saying she's native, but who was being told she, that she is not because she looks black. I thought it was a total, a total, total failure in that moment. It was so hard. And then I thought about it and thought about it. And the result of the thinking about it, I ended up writing in this book that appeared you know, a handful of years later, because what I had missed in assessing the damage was the white woman who had made the, the remarks about Cherokee slavery and then left. What we, were, what we were left with in that room was the native man and the Afro-native woman who was being told she wasn't native. In you know, a knock, a knockout, you know, drag down, or what is it, is it knock, knock down, drag out, fight with one another. And here I'm just extrapolating. I'm, I'm turning into, um, into a larger symbolic story, what really was just individuals who were involved in a, in, um, in a conference. But what it looked to me like was a triangle. It wasn't just the dyad that it had seemed to be. It was a triangle, but, but, but the corner in that triangle that, that represented whiteness, that represented a history of imposed authority and imposed control and imposed erasure it's an imposition of how the peoples were to relate to one another. Getting back to you know, what Nick was saying about allotment. Um, that whole aspect of the triangle had been rendered invisible as if it was non-existent. And it just looked like Native people and Black people or Native people and African Native people screaming at one another, fighting at one another over a reason that really was no longer so apparent because the reason had left and gone out the door. So for me, um, once I process, it's still hard to think about that moment. It was hard on, on probably everybody there. But for me, that has been a lesson that I have tried to carry with me from that moment, which is that we need to try to see all of the players. We need to try to see all of the positions and the ways in which they interrelate. And I know the triangle simplifies it. I know that it's probably, it's a much more complex geometric you know, shape that I don't even know what to call. But it at least helps us to see more of that context, which is always at play. I mean, maybe it wasn't at some point. Maybe Ivan Van Sertema is right. And um, the way he puts it, African peoples came to the Americas before Europeans. You know, maybe indigenous peoples went from the Americas, you know, to Africa. 
I don't know if we have evidence for that, but who knows? Anything is possible, right? So perhaps there is a prehistory. There is, you know, a time before academic historians started writing about the thing when we weren't within this structuring framework of um, colonialism and settler colonialism and empire and racialization and, and plantation slavery and all that. But it's very, very difficult to get at that. And right now, I think that we are living with and trying to think through and trying to see through the fallout of that framework. And it's really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. Cheryl, what does poetry offer us in terms of responding to or thinking about those frameworks? Because poetry is a really another, I mean, we've got large books, we get essays, poetry is really another way of, of getting at that. You have to unmute yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, certainly because we're working with primarily with images um, that we can juxtapose in certain ways and we're using a storyteller's voice, um, we're um, engaging emotions in a way that, um, that history often doesn't, um, that academic essays often uh, doesn't. So um, often, I think that's one of the big, is the big, the big things for me. And I know that when I'm writing or telling the story, um, I don't want to be didactic. I don't want to do that. I want to tell the story in a way that, um, that brings the audience into uh, the listener into, um, into that place with me so that they can, um, that they can feel it with me. I want to, um, when I'm, when I'm writing, I always think of the reader as the best, the sort of the best person, person, like a person of integrity and goodwill. That's the person I'm writing to. Um, you know, uh, I don't think it, it's, for me, it doesn't work to just, I might be angry, but it doesn't work, work to just inflict anger on people because nothing's gonna happen. But if I tell the story in a way that appeals to them because they are a person of goodwill, then I'm hoping they will hear it. And, um, and I do that with images and I do that as much as possible with a storytelling voice. The other thing I think that can happen is that um, um, that thing of putting in, in a bigger context, um, uh, you were saying sim uh, symbolic, Taya, um, and I'm thinking um, mythic sometimes. It's like you, you bring in a mythic level in poetry that sometimes, and um, I think that that can, that can be really useful also. And just the way you, um, you're working with a, a particular rhythm of the words to be able to um, make a music of it. I think that also somehow has something to do with it. Um, but when I was writing this, that particular poem in, in this book, I wanted to write it so that every single poem could be footnoted. Um, that was my in initial intention. And the footnotes could be historical. I worked from Jesuit relations and I worked, but I also worked from, you know, like Cronin's um, book about um, um, the land. What's the name of it? I forget the name of it now. Um, but the changes, oh, changes in the land. Um, but I also worked from, uh, from people's letters. I worked from um, um, field guides. Um, and I work from the land. So um, those, those were sort of the archive I was drawing from. So I felt that I was doing history 
in a way, but it was more that I'm doing stories. I'm, I'm telling stories and I'm telling stories that work together and somehow to, um, to fill in the gaps, if that makes any sense. Yes, thank you. Sean, you're also an artist and a poet and a storyteller. What, um, what are you thinking? I see you, you keep smiling and nodding, so I know you're thinking. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think <clears throat> I've been really, um, there's so much richness in this conversation. So I'm going to uh, bounce around a little bit. So I was thinking about uh, that notion of traitorous people is something that's that's resonating with me and particularly coming from a Cree Métis perspective, um, because in a lot of ways, we're still considered traitorous people um, in, in the sense of like, that, that there's a very uh, sort of visceral and, and line that was drawn at a, a particular date um, that led a lot of us to go into, into hiding. But I'm also approaching it, I think, this notion of complexity. So thinking about as an example, um, both sort of in current urban environments, but then also, you know, like Mi'kma'ki and other places where there's this long-standing kinship connection between sort of historical Black communities and Indigenous communities that live side by side and are integrated. And so, you know, and, and that sort of the, the, the pyramid piece is really sitting with me around like just what happens when sort of whiteness gets parachuted in and sort of um, completely erodes those relationships or, or literally pits people against each other, which you see in our communities with a lot of lateral violence and, and the ways that um, we end up having these conversations around identity um, that again, sort of limit the complexity. And so I think it's, it's like the thing that I was thinking about uh, and I think it's really present in your work, Cheryl, is like the thing in history that's missing to me to some extent is the humor. And so, cause your poem is very funny. <laughs> like, like there's, it's, it's, you know, and a lot of our historical, like, I think that's to me uh, a piece that is often missing from, from the histories that we talk about is that a lot of our histories are, are very funny. And there's a lot of humor in, in the way that we have survived sort of with one another. And in those kinship stories, um, you know, that, uh, that I think often gets, gets lost because of the seriousness that, uh, that colonialism pushes us into. And then I think particularly as, a, as like a, um, a Agueo, a, a queer person, a two-spirit person, I also think about how that intersects with these notions of history and, and erasure and, uh, and sort of um, those, that sort of single story, lack of complexity pieces, because it also, you know, even when we talk about the allotments or for, for uh, Métis people, for Timpsonwak people, the, the script um, program and those other and Indian acts and all of those things in Canada that again it was uh, about reducing complexity and creating a single story of of uh, cis men and cis men having dominance over everyone else Im imposed um, and so and the erasure that we existed in communities in the first place which is something we're we're still fighting back to sort of um, prove that we exist even though we've existed for you know as long as our, our peoples have um, with our own languages and our own ways of describing ourselves so I think um, as a poet those are also things that I'm trying to capture these very complex um, thoughts and principles and turning them into images um, and I think you know not necessarily spelling them out but I one thing that I another poem that I really like that was in um, that was in the collection was uh, I think it was about Oh, it was a uh, game bag and it was about um, uh, Kuskip, I think. Um, and it, that's, it, that's an example of those sort of humor pieces where there's these very funny things that, that are, are oxicon, oxiconic or legends and beings that live in our legends that they do, these mistakes that they make that are catastrophic to the earth, like, like accidentally flooding the earth because they have a grudge with you know, an animal or something like that. Um, and I was thinking about 
um, some of those, you know, when we go far enough back and we, we have those oral histories that, again, that's a way that we all relate and was an erasure of that complexity and our history is getting shut down. So um, those are some of the things I was thinking about as, as folks were talking. Kaya, I see you've been nodding and writing furiously. <laughs> I have, this is so inspiring. I love the way that um, the threads of poetry and history are coming together and the social work and social services piece as well. I mean, the point about um, how individual stories, especially for a child of, of their past can profoundly affect their future. I wrote that down. And of course that resonates with uh, Nick's ideas. So I just love how this is all coming together and connecting up. Nick? Yeah, no. I, um... I agree. I was actually like thinking about as uh, Cheryl and Sean were talking, uh, a piece that I wrote about um, hasn't published yet, but it's an essay I've been working on about um, poetry. And I'm not a poet at all, <laughs> but I like poetry because it's like each line is like what I would call a detonator sentence. It uh, not not like in a violent way, you know, not like explosive, but it, it kind of brings together meanings, feelings, all kind of like a complex kind of archive that we simply, I can't really do. I can't really, I, I don't have that skill and talent, <laughs> but I was thinking about how um, I wrote this reflection piece on um, the George Floyd uprisings and how, you know, hundred miles from where um, they took place in, in Minneapolis, you know, this Indian trader, Andrew Merrick uh, told a group of my ancestors, starving Dakota people um, that if they're hungry, let them eat grass. And, you know, as the uprising took place, um, you know, they found Andrew Merrick in his trade home or in his trading house, chased him, you know, gunned him down as he ran away, decapitated him and then stuck grass in his mouth. And this line sticks out from me from, um, you know, Lakota poet, Lely Long Soldier. And she wrote, uh, I'm inclined to call this act by the Dakota war warriors, a poem. And there was this question, you know, that po like whether or not poems are always textual. And I think like the burning of the third precinct is, is a poem too, um, that encapsulates the kind of feeling and anger that simply like saying, you know, things like Black, Black Lives Matter doesn't really capture or resonate, but it shows that like whiteness as property burns you know, and it can burn too. It can, you know, it, it has, it ha it's, it's not immortal. It's not inviolable, right? Uh, so that was one thing I was just thinking about, you know, um, that some poems are composed without words. Um, and I don't know as like even a scholar or a writer how to capture some things the way that poets can do it and you know who is a poet. Um, and that was, that was just something that came to my mind as I was listening to uh, Cheryl and Sean talk. Thank you. So indigeneity is in the news again. We've got Michelle Latimer. We've got that pretendian list that's getting some attention in the States. Um, and then this tweet came across um, my feed and I've been really captured by it. And I kind of want to get everybody's thoughts on it. Um, it's a, a, a Sami academic and he, he wrote, uh, indigenous is not an identity. It's an analytic, which means it describes the relationship between two or more data sets. It says Mi'kmaq is an identity, Lakota is an identity, African-American is an identity, Canadian is an identity. 
but indigenous describes a set of relationships to colonialism, anti-colonialism, and specific lands and places. And then Kim Tallbear responds saying um, that identity is a poor substitute for relations and is used as a weapon to displace relations. So as Black and Indigenous people, when we're telling history and writing about history, how does our analysis help us to understand help us to understand these relationships better. You know, if, you know, you know the, the, this, you know, these connections that we have between indigenous and, you know, colonialism and land and place and, and as, as displanted people on indigenous land, you know, how these, cause we got these pretendians running around laying claim to relationships that aren't theirs, you know, and, you know, or, you know, Rachel Dolezal and, and, you know, and others as well, you know, laying claim, to what is act, are really relationships. And how, so how does our analysis of history, maybe I'm trying to shoehorn things together that don't fit. I don't know. I can't stop thinking about that tweet. I don't know. Does anybody want to jump on that? If I made any sense at all? Indigenous seems like such a, you know, uh, it's one of those words, you know, it's like a big compartment you shove everything into because, you know, I'm a Beneke. Um, I'm, I'm indigenous, my people, my father's people are from here. Um, but what does that mean? I'm indigenous, that's relationship. As an Abenaki person, my connection is to the land and to my, my kinship relations. Um, but I think the indigenous, you know, the word indigenous um, to, to, um, to say it's an identity or not an identity or relations or not relations, I think it's just this, this made up uh, compartment that they threw everything in because they couldn't use the word Native American anymore. It was like, you know, in my father's time, you know, he, he, he just said Indian, we're Indian, you know, and um, what kind of Indian are we? I have, I have a poem, what kind of Indian are we? Um, you know, when I was probably six years old and hearing the word Abenaki, Abenaki for the first time. Um, so, you know, what they call us from out there, what scholars call us, um, uh, is, is that our identity? You know, I, I don't think it is. I think for me, um, it all has to do with who's my family, who's my kin, what are those relationships? Um, what's my um, relationship to the land in regards to all that? So yes, it's based on relationships, but then to like somehow um, the, put that into some kind of theoretical thing where it's, it's again, it's this binary, it's either this or that makes no sense to me. I don't think it, for me, it doesn't further the conversation. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't help my communities. You know, that's that's not really useful um, to them. Those, those aren't the conversations I think that that need to happen. Um, in terms of, I know there's this pretending thing um, going on, and I think that certainly there are people who are doing that. But I think there's also people who are making a reputation for themselves, going after people and blowing things out of proportion as well. So I think that that, that whole thing is, you know, it's a, it's a tinderbox and it, it's not useful to some of our communities. So um, that's, that's my two cents on it. Thank you. Nick or Taya? So I'll add one and a half cents <laughs> to what Cheryl just said. Um, I agree with, with that assessment. 
at least you know what I what I took you to be saying, Cheryl, about um, it's not necessarily so helpful to you take language and try to make it rigid again. I mean, we can recognize that none of these terms is going to be precise or applicable in every circumstance, and um, indigenous it is you know very large. <laughs> you know, it's it's baggy. I think that it's can be helpful because because it does have that stretch to it, and that it can be helpful for talking about um, global situations and and um, transnational relationships. But it, it makes no sense for people to use the terms that best describe them and their relationships. And it's possible to do both. It's possible to to use very specific terms and also general terms and to move back and forth between them. On the issue of um, Pretendian list. I have not seen this list. I have heard about this list. Um, I don't think that I have a right to speak about this issue, but I, I will just say that it, it makes me feel very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. The whole thing, and and I've I've heard about it from you know from from the different sides. Um, I think there's very good reason for people to be protective. And I also think that history tells us that people have built relationships across these lines. They have often not been blood relationships. I think history tells us that um, the kinds of documentation that we rely on through government records or ancestry.com are not going to capture the full picture of these histories. Absolutely. So um, it, it is, I mean, it is a, a landmine. Mm -hmm. There's a lot at stake in it. And I think that it's a very sensitive area. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking more about how when we when we control our when we tell our histories, you know, kind of you, you know the the way you, the way you guys are doing, and you know, and the kind of the books that you're writing, and you know, and, and and the other books that we've pulled together, how that I guess how that informs the way we think about these things, because then it's not whiteness telling the story; we're telling our own stories, our own relationships, and recognizing you know, and recognizing these com complicated relationships that we have with each other. And it tells it, it creates a much different picture, I think, about, about who we are as peoples and about who we are becoming. I mean, that's something that uh, David Truer talks about in his book is that, you know, new things are emerging. We're not the same peoples we were 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, or even, you know, 500 years ago. We're not, we're not the same. We're, we contain, we carry that within us, um, you know, but we're, but we're emerging into something new. Nick, at the end of your book, you, you talk a little bit about relation, about kinship relationships as maybe a, a, a as a source of possibility. Can you talk, expand a little bit about that? Yeah, I think what everyone has said about indigenousness, uh, or just to sum summarize, Indigenousness, the way I understand it, is fundamentally a, a, a way of relating um, that cannot be captured by, you know, some of the, I think we've done a good job at kind of like breaking down, you know, the binary kind of forms of history, but also how, um, you know, the, the, the way that like identity is positioned in a hierarchical manner. Um, and I would agree, I don't, I don't know so much about an analytic um, I was thinking about that. I think indigeneity like is more about like I think what Kim is more about relations and it's hard to capture that. And you know even 
in the south uh, i do a lot of i have a lot of friends who are you know from various you know uh south american countries and communities and they've a lot of them have abandoned the word indigenous uh has a very different connotation in spanish and dehima uh than it does in uh, english um and in spanish it's a it's almost a negative connotation and so they've begun to adopt the term uh, Pueblos Originos, the original people, um, which I you know, find interesting. It's a way to kind of think about that. But nonetheless, um, I would say that like, what, like why, why it's important to kind of think about like what other you know, groups are, are doing and communities are doing is that they've really advanced uh, what would be called like the rights of nature movement. And it doesn't really quite fit with kind of the liberal you know, framework of, you know, granting like individuals rights and therefore you're gonna grant like something that isn't categorically human rights. Um, but in fact, you know, there is a complete misunderstanding and a, a failure to actually study what these indigenous people uh, and also, you know, non-indigenous people like the African descendant movements in these countries are doing to rethink, like radically rethink the idea of liberal democracy as, as a complete failure and unable to actually account for, you know, what they would call plurinationalism or, you know, a multi, it's not, it doesn't even really like translate very well, but it's, it's understanding that individuals are not equal, right? And that civilizations are not equal. Um, and the best that we can hope for is to create some kind of, you know, democracy or some kind of form of government that we can agree on, not as individuals, not as individual right, rights bearing subjects, uh, but moving away from the liberal democratic norms and thinking about groups of people as holding those collectives. And then it's, of course, it's expanded to actually think about the natural world itself and how it, it has to have representation, you know, and there, it's like, it's, it's like in flux, it's not like a perfect thing, but frankly, I don't see any kind of movement like, you know, in the States or in Canada or the U S um, at least at like kind of the, the settler state level kind of moving towards that. They're so obsessed with, you know, the, the cult around the constitution and the cult around the liberal individual um, that has been incredibly destructive. And it actually, you know, prevents us from, I think, um, making those kinds of relations. And that, that's how I would say like something like water protectors are really fascinating identity because it's not specific to just indigenous people. Like, non-indigenous people or other you know other people can inhabit that identity and that caretaking role um and i think that's a much more capacious way of viewing um relationality as, as, as it relates to you know um how we understand like decolonization like decolonization which you know might be different from like a marxist sense and understanding a classless society you know we're not trying to eliminate nativeness or indigeneity or africanness or black culture we're actually decolonization means an amplification of those ways of life right and the i would i would call it a settler onticide which doesn't mean the actual like killing of settler people but like a cultural legal um social kind of uh uh what would you call it deprivileging or deplatforming of that that is the dominant way of relating because it's settler relations are fundamentally based on property right and we have alternatives and so that, that's my vision of decolonization is the amplification of those, those life worlds. That's what, I, that's what I think, you know, it means. And indigenous people, I think Emily Riddle said it really, really well, put it really eloquently. I don't have the quote in front of me, but she says, you know, Western notions of sovereignty are based on exclusion. 
whereas indigenous notions of sovereignty are based on like plurality and you know overlapping you know differences our strength comes from you know difference it doesn't come from you know uniformity or exclusion um, so I thought that was a really good way of, of putting it to show that indigenous people have always negotiated kind of different peoples, including non-indigenous people. And there's a political tradition there that is, I think, very capacious. And I think given the opportunity to thrive, it, it provides a model that isn't just something that's categorically indigenous, but that can go beyond kind of that parochial vision of like, oh, that's an indigenous issue over here. And like, let's not think about it. So that would, that's kind of what I was thinking. I don't say that in that chapter, but, but that, that's, where I, that's where my thought is going on it. Jump in with indigenous models of kinship might be really helpful. The end. And then hashtag land back. Well, I mean, and being here. Yeah, Abenaki historian, um, uh, Lisa Brooks has a book called The Common Pot in which she talks about you know, the very different kind of economic um, system that we have here and that we actually invited um, the uh, original settlers to join us in, which they did not, would not. Um, so for me, I, I don't see the, the democracy part of it as being as much of a problem as I see um, the capitalist model, the model that, you know, there are haves and there are have-nots um, and the whole way that's been playing out here. I think that that's a great problem. Um, and the other thing is just the, you know, the white supremacy that is, has been the underbelly of America from the very beginning. So I, I don't want to throw out the, the part of um, the, what's going on in America um, that actually includes people, which is, it seems to me, the democratic voting part. Uh, what I'd like to get rid of is the capitalism and the racism. That would be good. Yes. I'm with you. We'll get rid of that part of it. Um, so I'm, you know, being here in Niagara, Sean and uh, Khadija are also like we're, we're here in Southern Ontario and it's the dish with one spoon territory, um, which is a treaty between the Anishinaabeg and Haudenosaunee peoples. Um, and then, so Taya, when I was reading your book, you, you know, you talked about, there was the one chapter about eating out, eating out of the same pot. And I just thought that was, because that's the picture that I hear all the time around here is that, you know, that's the dish with one spoon is this area is one dish and we're going to share the resources and eat together. So, um, I, yeah, so can you just talk a little bit about that and then, uh, and then we'll kind of get to wrapping things up. Sure. Um, that's a quote that I found in really an old literature about um, Black and Native relations. And it's a quote that comes out of oral history, which takes us back to a point that was made earlier in our conversation. And that is much of the material that, that we need to actually see and recognize, as Nick put it, those alternatives, it exists in oral history, it exists in oral tradition, it exists in poetry, it doesn't necessarily exist in the written archive. And if we only look at written materials, we will miss it. Though I do think we must also look at written materials and I was really excited to hear you talk about that, Cheryl, about the ways in which you bring in archival materials and your um, research and inspiration for writing poetry. But that quote is really about common life, about coming together to support life. 
And I think it's one of the visions that we have to take forward. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I really don't want to end on a negative note, so I hesitate to say this, but I am going to say that Nick's comment about, I think he was, I think he used the, the language of the cult of the constitution was very interesting to me. Um, I don't know, I can't remember if you said the cults of the Declaration of Independence as well and put those together. But yes, if we go back to those founding documents, we see a lot of problems, right? We see a lot of problems in the ways in which Native people and Black people are represented. And of course, there is that very important central third actor that is attempting to do the orchestration and attempting to impose on these populations of Black and Native people. So, you know, what does it mean in this moment that we are really having to turn back to this language of the constitution to try to put up a defense against things like the Capitol insurrection. So what I'm saying is these founding documents are problematic. We know this. Yes, there are some good ideas in the mix as well. I think we need to acknowledge that, but they are deeply problematic and they are constructed in a way as to marginalize, control, exploit Native people and Black people and Native land, though often in different kinds of ways. And yet I have felt that in this moment, you know, uh, I've just been begging somebody, please, let's, let's pay attention to the Constitution. Let's, let's try to, you know, uh, abide by some of these laws that are supposedly so important to this country so that things can hold together. Let's not let a bunch of people carrying weapons and a Confederate flag tear apart whatever it is that we have of a democracy. And so to me, there's a tension there in what it is that we're discussing. We have alternatives, we need alternatives. And yet I feel like we're just barely trying to hold on to some kinds of some kind of semblance of democracy. Mm-hmm. So just by way of wrapping up, um, Sean had just posted a really good comment and I'm gonna switch up the question I was gonna ask everybody at the end to reflect on what Sean is saying. So Sean's comment is, he's thinking about the comment, the concepts of Lakota when uh, kinship, what it means to be a good relative. So I'm just gonna ask as kind of we go around, um, you know, for our final thoughts, you know, shaping around that. And Sean, I, you, you know, it's your comment. So we'll start with you. Um, also, it's your Cree word, so we'll let you unpack that. <laughs> um, because that is that relationality and what it means to be a good relative and what history can, you know, our, our reflections on history as we read it, as we research it, as we write it. Um, it says a lot about relationality and being relatives and not, I, you know, we talked with Daniel uh, Heath Justice yesterday about his new book, Raccoon, and we can be in relationship with with you know other than human relatives and human relatives we don't have to like them but we can still be in relationship with them and you know and respect their space and respect those overlapping borderlands that we live in because we you know sometimes you know there are those the borders aren't 
you know, kind of fixed, right? They're, they're often, often very overlapping. So we'll kind of go around with, you know, whatever final thoughts that you have, but just in, in the context of what it, what it means to be a good relative. So we'll start with you, Sean. Yeah. And I think I was thinking about um, that we are in relation to one another. Like, mm. like we don't have to like our relatives, but we are like that. Is, that is a fundamental reality of, of what it means to be human and, and related to each other because we are all related, um, which I know is sort of like that, you know, often gets used as sort of like a, a catchphrase or slogan, but I think it, it, it's the fundamental truth is that we, the, what makes us different is that relationship we have to each other as humans and to the, the sort of like beyond human world and to spirit and like all of that stuff that layers on top of each other that becomes very complex. Um, and I think, you know, in, in referring back to the earlier question around the sort of pretendian thing, I think the, the real question to me you know, because people are always going to claim identities, um, whether whether they belong to them or not, because that's part of capitalism and consumption. But the question then comes to me for those folks is, what have you done for our communities then? If you're going to claim kinship with us, what have you done for our communities to make it better? What have you done to make our communities better? What have you done? You know, because we had systems of integrating people uh, and we've had those for, for thousands of years, right? That's what adoptions are for. That's what marriages were for. That's what a lot of those were for, was these notions of creating relatives with one another. Um, so that's what I think about. Um, and, and for each nation, that's probably going to be a little bit different because what it means to be a good relative is related to our language and our, and our own sort of like worldview and concepts. Um, but, uh, but for me, I think it is about what responsibilities do we have to one another to make um, our time here a little bit better. So that's how I would, I would frame that. So that's a question to ask, I think, uh, anyone, but especially folks who are claiming kinship to us is, okay, well, if you're claiming to be Cree, then what are you doing for Cree people? <laughs> like, what are you doing to help each other? Nick? Yeah, this, um, I guess like uh, one of my mentors framed it best. And I think we think of relations as a spatial thing, but also uh, what I try to do in my book is think about it as a temporal framing as well. Uh, you know, Vine Deloria once said that like he, he kind of coined or I guess elaborated on the idea of seven generations. And I think people use it in different ways, um, but the way that he framed it is very much like a Lakota way of, or Dakota way of thinking about it. Uh, for some, for some communities, not all of them, but you know, seven generations is, you know, one would be considered a like a lucky person or a fortunate person if they met their great grandparents, their grandparents, their parents three generations back, and then got to meet you know their uh, children, grandchildren, and great grandchildren, and that's six you know three generations forward. So that's sixth generation, and they represent the seventh generation. Um, and I always thought that was a good way to think about it because also another like one of my mentors actually told me she was you know she said you don't even own your own life you are here to ensure, you know, that we will have generations of people to come, you know, as, as Dakota or Lakota people. And I, I, you know, I think some, it might, it's not like fatalistic or anything like that, but um, it is, you know, very much a future oriented thing. And to see oneself uh, as being a good ancestor for the future generations is something that we aspire to be, you know, in the here and now. Um, and I think that's you know something that I, I always I always think about. Like we've talked a lot about kind of the the relationality to different you know groups of people, um, both human and otherwise. But I also think about that in a temporal aspect as well. That this that indigenous people have always been a future oriented people, um, and that's where that that kind of um, 
notion of being a good uh, a good relative for me at least comes from this, this kind of idea of being a good ancestor to the future. Thank you, Cheryl. I agree so much with what you just said, and also Sean. Um, that it has to relationship as soon as you say the word relationship for me what it means is that there's responsibility between the two people who are in the relationship that it, um, and I want to say that's true um, in the other than human world as well that um, that we are in that relationship whether, whether we whether we want to be in a relationship or not we actually are so it's up to us then to take responsibility um, for that and um, and acknowledge that it's a kinship and um, I think um, being, being the good ancestor, being the good relative um, is really about that, about how do, I, how do I act in right relationship with, how do I, how do I give back um, to the green plants that are making the oxygen that I breathe, that are feeding me, that are feeding everything on the planet. For example, it's like if you're living in, a, in that place where you acknowledge that, um, that you are living because of the gifts of other beings, then you are going to be in a different relationship to them. Um, and I think that's, for me, I guess it's always sort of like looking for that. Like, what is that? Where's the balance and reciprocity happening? Like, what is my responsibility here? Um, and I, so I think it, you were talking about going uh, temporally um, you know, so I'm thinking that a little bit as a vertical and sort of the, the horizontal cosmology also, which reaches out toward everything in the world, you know, first our, you know, immediate families and, and uh, maybe human community, but to the non-human community um, as well. Thank you, Cheryl. Khadija? This has been very eye-opening for me, and I really appreciate everybody's insights. I think that it also sparked in me my ongoing identity crisis. <laughs> and to answer your um, question, I think when I think about being a good relative is just grappling with my context here because my, as an immigrant, I'm here through the colonial state and my family immigrated after my um, my dad was chased out of Libya due to political unrest and um, uh, suppression on, uh, from the Libyan government. And so my father left Libya and was basically just roaming several different countries and then ended up in Canada as a refugee. And then two or three years later, the rest of my family joined him. And so my understanding of Canada um, that shaped me as a child was, you know, this place that reunited my family that gave us a home when our own home didn't want us. And so I grew up with this idea of, 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 of you know, Canada as a, as a saving grace. And as I've grown older and understood Canada's relationship with um, indigenous peoples as a colonial state, I, I grapple with those two sides of me and how to be a good relative to the indigenous people of the land when I was brought here and my existence here was legitimized through the colonial state. And, um, as, as everybody was talking, I, that a lot of that came up for me. And I think that, um, Taya, to your point, I think it's, for me, being a good relative is always assessing how whiteness and the white supremacist state is, is, is present in, my, in the way I, 
understand my own identity and relationship with um, other nations on Turtle Island and recognizing that and always interrogating um, the ways in which my presence as a settler legitimizes the colonial state and silences the, the, the um, narrative of, of indigenous communities. And so it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process, I think, to, to be a good relative. And I think the other thing that I wanted to mention in terms of what Nick said when you said deplatforming that the, the colonial narrative. I thought of um, Tanya's book at, because she weaves in, she weaves in all these um, little details about traditions of different communities throughout the discussion about very heavy topics. And in one part, she talked about um, uh, the tradition and I can't remember the tradition of which, which nation and I wrote it down, but I have too many notes so I won't try to look for it. But in, in a specific indigenous nation um, where there's a ceremony for a child um, when they start walking that their feet don't touch the ground until they start walking. And I'm, I'm listening to the audiobook in my car and then when that came on, I got really excited because um, in Libya, we have this tradition of um, when a child starts walking, there, you get a, a little like wool rope and you tie it around the child's um, like ankles and then another child cuts it. And that's a celebration of the child beginning to walk and the child takes their first step. And so that was a moment that I was just really excited because being away from my community, that's something that I had forgotten about. And then when she mentioned that, I was like, oh, wow, I remember that in Libya. And so as, as um, we were talking about like deplatforming the, the colonial narrative and, and understanding how they're present, I just realized that it was like these little moments where I was able to relate to um, Tanya's um, story without the, the, the colonial presence, right? Where it was like, this is my tradition and I related to her with her tradition and whiteness and colonialism wasn't there. So I think that really just warmed my heart about finding those little pockets of joy where we can connect with each other without whiteness imposing itself on us. And lastly, I think just based on what um, I've read from you, Patty, about being a good relative is being a good intern. And so that's really stuck with me since I read your Twitter thread at some point about being a good intern. And I think that that's something that I'm always hoping to amplify and always hoping to do is to just be a, be an intern and learn so that I can be a good relative and in turn, um, like Nick said, be a good ancestor. And thank you. I also want to just thank everybody for, for, for this space, for your knowledge, for your insight. It's, it's been absolutely a phenomenal conversation. Well, thanks, Khadija. Yes, I've been going off on Twitter, but we need interns, not allies. We need... <laughs> so, yeah, I absolutely love that. Yeah. Well, and, and I think in, in different capacities, I also act as an intern, you know, with, you, you, you know, with, um, you know, with the queer and two-spirit communities, there's a lot that I don't know. And, you, you know, so, so I spend a lot of time learning um, as opposed to trying and help, uh, you know, so it's about learning and then, you know, kind of doing that, you know, doing those tasks and maybe bringing coffee if that's necessary. <laughs> so Ty, I'll give you the last word. Wow, you all are such wordsmiths. I mean, you'll have said so many things that, that I'm so glad this is being recorded because I want to remember it what is it recorded. is that you've said. Yes. Um, I, I really can't add to what has been said. I agree with what has been said about relationship 
already being in place. We couldn't avoid it if we wanted to. We couldn't untangle it if we wanted to. And that is about um, both the good and the bad. And, and let me just say here that we are all in a relationship to whiteness. Many of us have white ancestry. Many of us have white relatives. And so there, there's, no, there's no way to slice off whiteness because as we can't slice off blackness and we can't slice off indigeneity in this conversation. I think what we want to do is to try to understand how it is that we can get closer to healing, try to understand how we would relate to one another if we could look closely at these alternatives, recognize them and try to, to dream and act them into being. I completely agree with what has been said about responsibility, about um, beings who are not human as um, being a part of that picture. And I guess I'll just say that such as I love words, uh, I feel like we can talk a good game, right? You know, we can say it's so important that we're relatives and we need to be responsible. We need to be reciprocal. We need to listen. But when we are faced with those choices of how to, how to be with people or how to be with uh, beings who are not human, what do we choose? For me, that's what I'm leaving this conversation with, wanting to take all of these wonderful words and ideas about relatedness and about being relatives into my tomorrow and into the way that I choose to respond to somebody or to act in relation to somebody. Thank you. Thanks. So thank you guys so much for participating. I love it when people say yes to me. I get so excited. And Nick, um, the general consensus on the Twitch chat is that you uh, you acquitted yourself very well for somebody with a fuzzy head. So <laughs> somebody who hasn't been feeling well, we appreciate you being here even though you weren't feeling well. So thank you very much, all of you, uh, for participating and Janessa for keeping uh, the chat going and mostly on topic. Uh, I appreciate you deeply. And uh, yeah, we'll be back uh, in a month talking about memoir. So thank you so much. Good night. Thank you for listening. Ombe streams live throughout 2021 on www.twitch.tv/pattywithay_wbk on the third Wednesday of every month. Episodes are archived there as highlights and released as podcasts to those who are subscribed to Medicine for the Resistance. Medicine for the Resistance is a podcast I co-host with Carrie Goring, where we explore themes similar to the conversation you just heard. The Colonial Project wants to control how and if we see each other. Our work is in investigating the stories we were not told so that we do. You can support this work at Patreon slash pay your rent or by buying us a coffee at ko fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can find out more about me and the things I do at daanis.ca where I post transcripts for these episodes as well as thoughts on my blog. You can sign up for my newsletters. You can find me on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S if you want to talk about the things you've heard. Thank you to Pearlie Papineau for her editing skills and Liz Barkley for the transcripts.